If you had to choose, I just want to give you some decisions here. If you had to choose between having zero access to TV, you know, screens, uh, video, media, if you to having zero access to, to TV or zero access to the Bible for the rest of your life, which would you choose? Which could you live without more easily? Which is more necessary for your life? If you had to choose between never getting to talk with your best friend or never getting to talk to God in prayer for the rest of your earthly life, which would you choose? If you had to choose between never getting to use so-called social media or never getting to socialize and fellowship at church again, which would you choose? It is my prayer that God would use his word today to make those decisions very easy for us. While it may be painful uh, for some of us to lose <clears throat> things like TV or talking to that best friend or social media use or, or whatever it may be, those should all be small compared to the horror of losing God's word, prayer, and Christian fellowship. And the reality is, if that's true, if it really would be better to not have those things for the rest of your life so that you could have God's word and have prayer and have Christian fellowship, then shouldn't we be willing to sacrifice those things sometimes? Because usually it's not a lifelong commitment. Usually it's like, hey, turn off the TV for 20 minutes and you could be reading your Bible. I, I find in my own experience, and I've used it before, we say, I should, I should be reading my Bible more, but I'm just too busy. I mean, I, I'm, I'm seriously not trying to be a jerk here. If I were to say, how many minutes a day do you watch TV? What would the answer be? And I would say, boom, there's your time. <laughs> there, you know, and, and the same goes for what, maybe TV is not your thing. I don't know. But it's, the same goes for everything. I, I want to convince you today that God's word, that prayer, that Christian fellowship, the, these things are so necessary, so essential for our lives, for our joy and for God's glory that we should say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I want those things. Now, we are going to study today uh, from the book of Romans. We'll actually be here for the next, um, including this one, four weeks uh, in, in the book of Romans as we pursue the master's mission. And the, the book of Romans was written uh, primarily to professing believers. He talks to the saints who are at Rome. But they were newer believers, you could say. They were immature uh, in their faith and understanding. And you can, by the way, see that in some of the questions that they evidently were asking. Shall we sin that grace may, be, may abound? You know, things like that. So they're newer believers. And so by the time you get to chapter 12 that we're going to begin uh, this week, Paul has already unfolded what is likely the greatest crash course on theology that has ever been written. I mean, you'd have to point it out to me, this better crash course on theology. One could say maybe Ephesians, but you can, anyways, it's shorter, but 
<laughs> There's more in Romans. So it is a, just a beautiful book. I, I truly want to commend the book of Romans to you as this crash course on what is the Bible. And so th these are things I, I want to show you quickly. In chapter 1, Paul gives them a crash course on the fall of mankind into sin and the consequences of that sin against their creator. In chapters 2 through 7, these are just, you know, generalizations. Paul teaches of salvation through faith in Jesus and his sin-bearing death and victorious resurrection. That alone, I mean, he shows that that even, even in the Old Testament, they were, they were saved by faith like Abraham. And you, you have these things, this salvation. Chapter 8 one could argue, is about the benefits, the wondrous benefits of this salvation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have the Spirit. God, God is, helps us to put sin to death. We are heirs of Christ Jesus. We will one day receive resurrected bodies. And even now we receive the comfort of the Spirit that dwells within us. These and, and many more benefits that, that he lists. But then in chapters 9 through 11... One way you could summarize it is by saying he starts to focus on the master's mission. That is, uh, God's great plan of spreading the fame of his name to the ends of the earth through Christians. And we see God, God's work in that pretty well laid out in chapters 9 through 11, that God uses human agents to do his miraculous saving work through Christ Jesus uh, but, but chapter 11 uh, is, is kind of an interesting one. There, Paul is urgent to drive home the point that one of God's primary purposes in saving Gentiles, so that's non-Jews, all nations, people of all nations, was for the salvation of the Jews, the people who had rejected Christ. And the Jews were to see and to hear about, <coughs> excuse me, to hear about the salvation of more and more Gentiles, and it was to make the Jews jealous unto salvation. As more Gentiles came to faith, it would cause the Jews more jealousy and longing for their own salvation in Christ. So that's chapter 11. That's kind of how chapter 11 ends. And so when we get to chapter 12, the master's mission is squarely on Paul's mind. That God is spreading the fame of his name and this salvation through Jesus alone through Christians sharing the gospel. But it's interesting. In chapter 12, Paul doesn't give them a lesson on evangelism. He doesn't begin teaching them how to share their faith. Now, there is great value in learning how to share your faith. And, and that, by the way, is why we spent all last week looking at how to share our faith through the example of Moses. But what I want to show you today is that you can do a good job sharing your faith and still be a bad ambassador for Christ. It is possible to speak of God's power and glory, but to make him appear weak and small. It is possible not to be ashamed of the gospel with your lips, but to bring shame upon the gospel with your life. In other words, Paul tells them that your conduct matters. 
your conduct matters. If you have a bulletin, you can be filling these things in if that's helpful for you. But this is what we are going to see. Paul shifts from the master's mission, all that God is doing. And so now he comes to our responsibility. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. And we'll pause there just in, in the middle of, of verse 2. So you think about this. Paul's talking about the master's mission, what God's doing, the, the human conduits he used. And, and rather than giving them an evangelism lesson, he, he starts to talk about their conduct. Do not be conformed to this world, he says. Conformed is the idea of fitting into the shape of something else, like clay that's, that's pushed into a mold. He's saying, don't, don't fit the mold of this sinful world. Their values, their loves, their hates, their actions, their words, don't fit the mold of this world. Don't be conformed to this world. Why? What does it say to the world when Christians live just like the world? What does it say to them when we love the same things, say the same things, and do the same things as this sinful world we have supposedly been saved out of? The Bible tells us we're no longer citizens of this world. We have been brought out of this sinful world system, not in, in our, our fleshly bodies, but in our spirit. And so what is it if we live just like the world? I, I will tell you what it says to the world when a so-called Christian lives just like the world. It says that God is not glory in us, glorious enough to have captured our full attention. He's not that great. The world still has my attention. It says that the pleasures of this sinful world are gre greater than the pleasures of God. I know what God has said that I should do and shouldn't do, but you know what? This sin is better than obedience in, in a good relationship with God. That's, that's what we're telling the world. And I would say that, that to call yourself a Christian, but to live like the world says that God is only a savior to be used instead of a treasure to be worshiped and adored. And, and do you see how that makes for a very small, weak, inglorious God? One that's not truly worthy of our worship, of our praise, of our service, of our obedience. That's what happens when we say, God has my soul, but he can't have my body. He's not going to change the way that I live. You know, it is one of my uh, greatest goals in life that no one would ever say of me, oh, you're a Christian? I wouldn't have guessed that. I, I would be mortified. I'll, I'll tell you, I'd probably go home crying. Oh, you're a Christian? I wouldn't have guessed that. You know why I would be so mortified? Because we are not to be conformed to this world. It makes a mockery of God. It makes a mockery of the gospel. It makes a mockery of his powerful, life-transforming work. And so it is, Paul says, because God is who he is, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
this is what we do. Instead of being conformed to the world, living like the world, speaking like the world, we live as living daily, every moment sacrifices to God, servants of God, worshipers of God. This is holy. By the way, the word holy means different, set apart, acceptable to God. This is what God is looking for. Because the same thing is true. If, if conforming to the world shows them God's not that great, he's not all that pleasurable, he's, he's, not, uh, he, he's only a, a savior to be used, not a treasure to be adored. If, if, if our conforming to the world shows that, being different from the world shows that God is glorious, that he is precious, that he is to be treasured, loved, adored, and obeyed. And so it's, it's interesting that, that this is to be worshipped. This is to be <clears throat> sacrificial, yes, but a life of glad worship to God. Look at the way Philippians 2 uh, verses 14 and 15 put it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I just want to pause there for a second. You could think of this only in the horizontal dimension. You know, uh, human to human, don't, don't grumble or dispute, but you can also think of this in the vertical dimension. How many times have we obeyed and been like, yeah, sorry, I can't go to the bar with you because I, 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 you know, I'm not supposed to get drunk, uh, the, you know, like, or sorry, I can't watch that movie. You know, it's just such a drag that I, I'm just not supposed to watch those things. We, we act like serving God is, is the biggest burden and drudgery ever, ever put on us sometimes. But here we see, do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Glad obedience shows the glory of God. Do you get that? Glad obedience, being happy to live a life of sacrifice, that shows a glorious God. In the same way as, again, conforming to the world shows that God's not glorious, to say, I am glad to live a life of sacrifice, that shows that God is the treasure, not this world. That shows that God is glorious and powerful. This is what we are to be. This is what God has saved us to be. This is what God is. God is glorious. God is a treasure. God is the, the, the fountain of pleasures that are greater than the, what this world has to offer. But by our lives, we sometimes don't live like it. And by our lives, we become bad ambassadors, no matter what our mouths say about the gospel. Now, there's a bit of a problem here. I, I remember um, when I first started trying to share the gospel, God grabbed a hold of my heart. I said, okay, I'm going to tell all my friends that I've been partying with uh, about this Jesus, about this glorious God. And so I, I would go and I would do my best to just get in these conversations and share with them what Jesus had done for me, what he could do for them, how great this God was. But 
it had very little effect. It had very little power in my friends' lives. It was two years before the first one of my friends came to faith. Do you know why I suspect that is? I mean, there's all sorts of things going on there, but one aspect is this. I had not learned to control my conduct. I had not learned to control what I did with my body. So I would be sharing the gospel with my worldly friends, but at the very same time, I was living like my worldly friends, saying the same kind of jokes they would say, using the same bad words they would use, putting the same substances in my body uh, to the same degree they were. I was still doing those things. And, and, and I knew I wasn't supposed to do those things. I wasn't stupid. Like, I knew I wasn't supposed to be cussing and telling dirty jokes and getting drunk. I knew that. But I couldn't control my body, my conduct. And so I remember driving home just being like, God, I did it again. I I messed up. I said these things. I did these things. and I I made a mockery of you. And I realized that at that time, this is making God and the gospel look stupid. And so... Here is what happened that that I learned I needed to do. Because I was trying not to do these things. This is the second thing we'll learn from Paul. Not only does your conduct matter, your mind matters. See, I wanted to change my conduct. I wanted to stop doing these things so that I could be a better ambassador for Christ. But... Your, your, your body only follows your mind. And I still had a mind that, that loved the things that the world loved to, to, to a degree that I would then say and do those things. You, you really need to understand that principle. I, I hope you do. Your body follows your mind. <laughs> your body won't do something that your mind is telling it not to. Your body won't obey God if your mind doesn't want to obey God. It won't. And so we see there in the verses, he says the alternative to being conformed to this world, or rather the solution to being conformed to this world, is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. If you want to present your body as a living sacrifice to God, you have to change your mind. You have to change what you think about God and about his commands. Now, it's interesting that that word, uh, the, the words rather, testing, that by testing you may discern. Testing and discern is, is one word in the Greek. In the English translations, we've split it up to two words, but it's describing a word that, that we just um, don't really have one for. And so I will explain to you what that, what that word means and what we're trying to get at. It, it carries not only the idea of knowing the will of God, but examining and approving the desirability of the will of God. It is, I see the will of God and it is good It is, I not only know what God demands, I desire to do it. That is different than begrudging obedience. That says, I'm not supposed to watch this sort of movie. I'm not supposed to do this sort of thing. I'm not supposed to uh, say this sort of thing. Uh, 
No, th- this is not that. This is not begrudging obedience that the Christian is to have. We are to, 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 to examine and discern and approve of the will of God. Now, God doesn't need our approval, so please don't hear me wrong. God is good. His commands are good and glorious and perfect. It is our minds that are out of whack. And that's the whole idea. We need to change our minds to get in line with God because what God is and what God says and what God commands is good. And so the only way we will have glad obedience that makes God look glorious is for our minds to change, and then our, our, our minds will control our body, the conduct will change, and then we can shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. This is what we need. And I, I by the way, um, should mention, I, I don't normally talk too much about the, the Greek, but that word uh, for transformed is metamorphe. That, that, that doesn't, it's, it's a very different word than just change, okay? Metamorphe is, is to, I mean, we use the word transform both in kind and quality. There we go, sorry. In kind and quality. This metamorphe, we get the word metamorphosis, it's what a tadpole does when it becomes a frog and what a caterpillar does when it becomes a butterfly. There is a utterly different form to the thing. Now, it still remains the same thing, I guess you would say. It's, it's the tadpole, you know, I don't know how to even say it. Like the, the DNA is still the same. It's still the same, but it's changed utterly in kind and quality. And that's what we need. Different values to value what God values. Different loves different hates even to hate what God hates and desire what God desires this is what we need but there is another issue I hate to say it we can't transform our own minds I think I'm hitting next there we go we we, we can't transform our own minds look, look at the way Paul words it He doesn't say, transform yourself, renew your mind. He says, what? Be transformed. That, that, if you like grammar, is a passive imperative. It's saying, let this happen to you. You can't do it, but you need to make sure it happens to you. You, Christian, need to be transformed if you want to live for the glory of God Find your deep joy in him and the good of others through your witness and through your life. You need to be transformed. And so we come to my next point. Transformation occurs through supernatural means of grace. Transformation occurs through supernatural means of grace. So you say, okay, if I can't change myself, then then what am I supposed to do? This is, this is a little bit uh, complicated. So supernatural means of grace is, is kind of a play on words that I'm throwing in here. Within uh, Orthodox Christian, Christianity, there is what is known as the common means of grace. This is things that God has given us that are accessible and usable by all. That is things like Bible reading, 
uh, Bible reading, prayer, and fellowship. Now, those aren't the only means of grace that God gives us that are common means of grace, but those are the main ones uh, that, that the Bible teaches us about, that he has given us his word to transform us, that he has given us prayer to transform us and church fellowship to transform us, to transform our minds and our actions. These are God's, what, what again is known as common means of grace. But I've decided to call these supernatural means of grace. And I, I have a reason for that. Did the Pharisees read their Bibles? Let's see some head nods. Yes or no? Did the Pharisees read their Bibles? A lot more than you. A lot more than me. They memorized and read and studied the scripture, you could say religiously. Okay. Did the Pharisees pray? <laughs> Absolutely. They had some very pious prayers uh, from what we see in the scripture. They, I guarantee you once again that they spent more time in the act of prayer than any of us will. This is where they found their identity was in doing these religious actions. Now, did the Pharisees fellowship with other so-called believers? Yes. They, they, they did that. In fact, they, you remember how angry, indignant they were at Jesus? Why? Because he spent time with sinners and tax collectors. They would not spend time around non-believers. Like that was a rule of theirs. Like they, they would, you know, they felt like the, they were going to be defiled by the sinner. And so they did fellowship because the only people they were around was other so-called believers. And so let me ask you this. What was Bible reading, prayer, and, and fellowship, was that a means of grace to the Pharisees? No. By and large, uh, according to passages like Matthew 8, 12, the Pharisees went to hell. They were not transformed by the word of God, by prayer, or by fellowship. Rather than, than finding a means of grace, they found a means of self-righteousness in God's word. They found a way to, rather than be changed into a loving, serving person, they used it as a manipulative act towards others to get them to serve them. This is what the Pharisees did. And Jesus says in Matthew 8, 12, they will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. These people who spent so much time in the Bible, in prayer, in fellowship, and so I'm telling you, while these are common means of grace, accessible to all of us, usable, really doable by all of you, there is nothing common about the transformation that we need. We need supernatural transformation. Please understand, you, just hear this, if you hear nothing else, you will not be transformed unless you give yourself to the common means of grace. You will remain a weak, immature Christian uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're not studying your Bible. You, you will remain weak and immature and, and, and not very fruitful if you aren't spending time in prayer and in fellowship. These are the common means of grace. These are the conduits through which God has chosen to pour out his transforming work. But we need more than just the act. 
We need more than just the object of the Bible or, or checking the box of fellowship. We need God to transform us. And so I want to give you two applications from what we've just said. We, we truly need God to transform us. Oh, by, by the way, I, I do, I do want to give you this, and this is part of what we need. God has given us a promise, though. <laughs> you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Th that's what the Pharisees weren't doing. They weren't actually seeking God. They weren't actually seeking transformation. They were just using the, the means of grace for their own manipulative ends. But if we seek God with all our heart, we will seek him and we will find him. That is a great promise. And so what that should, should, should leave us with is that we can give ourselves, give yourself to the common means of grace. Knowing that God says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And so we say, okay, I, I, there's life in God's word. There is life in prayer. There is life in fellowship. There is no other path to transformation. There isn't. There's no plan B. There's no other way to have your mind renewed. There's no other way to become fruitful and God glorifying, actively God glorifying with your life than to give yourself to the common means of grace. I just want to make that as simple and clear as possible. Tell me one strong Christian you know that doesn't love and spend a great deal of time in God's word. Memorizing, meditating on. It's just, it doesn't happen. And so I'm begging you to do whatever it takes to spend time with these common means of grace. Again, if it means turning off your TV so that you can read your Bible, if it means you don't get to spend time with your best friends so that you can spend time with God in prayer, if it means you don't use social media so you can come fellowship, whatever, I figure you'll be starving for social interaction, so you'll want to come to church, you know. Uh, whatever it takes to get you in the common means of grace, do it. It will absolutely be worth it. You will never look back and say, man, I cannot believe I wasn't able to watch that series on Netflix because I, I had to read the Bible. Like 10 years from now, you, you'll be so thankful that you chose the greater over the lesser, infinitely greater over the lesser. Give yourself to the common means of grace no matter what you have to sacrifice. Remember, we're presenting our, our whole lives, our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Secondly, I would say this. Use common means of grace as though you need God. Remember, this is supernatural. We need God to be in this. And the Pharisees can spend their time in, in their Bibles just to check the box and it will do them absolutely no good. For the Pharisees, all it did was damn them. God said, you had my word, you had these things, but you did not see me in them, Jesus said. Use the common means of grace as though you need God. What that means is we open our words and we say, I need life in here. I need to see God here. I need to see his glory. I need to see how he wants to change me. I need to see his grace. I need to see his love so that I desire what he desires, so that I love what he loves because I need my mind changed and I need God to do this. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law, David said. Among many other promises or uh, prayers, rather, in the Bible, we see that we need God to do this for us, to transform us as we come to his word. 
And when we come to prayer, again, it, it isn't just something you do before a meal or do before you go to bed at night just because you're supposed to. It is, it is coming to a God that you are utterly dependent on. You come to plead and petition before your great God. God, I need transformation. And we do the same even with fellowship. We, 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 we come together with believers because we know that, that as still humans, we are prone to fall away from the living God because of the deceitfulness of sin. But Hebrews 3 says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. You, you come to fellowship and say, these people are keeping me away from the deceitfulness of sin. God, use them. And, and you come and say, okay, they're supposed to stir up our, our zeal. God, I, I need these people to stir up my zeal, my, my desire, my delight in God. This is how we do these things. Common means of grace are common because they're accessible, but we need supernatural work. And so we plead, we beg, and we dig for the glory that God has available. Because it is only as we behold his glory that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. Father God, we do so desperately need you. Part of our sinful, sick condition is that we don't even realize how much we need you. Even as, as Christians, those who have believed on your son and been uh, indwelt by your spirit, we still struggle with our flawed minds that believe we're okay. And I think that that's one of the greatest lies of Satan. You're okay. Don't worry about it. You're saved. But we see in the Bible that we are supposed to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so God, help us to recognize our need for you. God, we thank you so much that you have given us uh, so-called common means of grace. Ways that we can access your transforming glorious work to have our hearts and our minds changed so that our, our bodies follow and that we can actually go therefore and make disciples for your glory, God. We are so thankful for these common means of grace. I, I, I confess even now, God, and I repent of the times that I neglect your word, that I go to other things for life, I go to TV, I go to entertainment, sports, even, even friends, good things, hoping that they will give me life. When all the while you want to give it to me through your word, through prayer, and through fellowship, God. Lord, would you make us today begin to make the right decision? Begin to make the right decision when we decide how to use our time. And God, when we do read our Bibles, pray, fellowship, all these things, help us to come to you in need. To humble ourselves before you, knowing that you are the only one that can transform our minds. Who can 
metamorphe, metamorphosis, utterly different in kind and quality. That's what we want and that's what we need, God. Help us to come to you. Lord, we are so thankful again for your son that covers our sin, that gives us life and that renews us day by day and transforms us, God. We are thankful and we pray that you would keep us clinging to him for your glory, our joy, and the good of all peoples, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.